Well, hey, everybody, so great to see you. How many of you still don't have power at your house? Anybody? We're all back on? We're all praising God for consumers, energy workers? There you go. All right. Yeah, I know, right? Let's give them a round of applause. That's a good one. Yeah, that's good. If you're hearing that you, that was a bad round of applause. But we're moving on now. Hey, whether you're here in the room or joining us online, honored to have you along for the ride today. We're in the final week of a series that we've called The Journey to Faith. And it's all about what it looks like for an adult to become a follower of Jesus. And in case you're joining us for the first time, you should know that I began this series like many moons ago by making a really fascinating observation. At least I thought it was fascinating. And the observation went like this. Adults don't generally become Christians after working through their objections or finding answers to all their questions. I mean, they really don't. Uh, as I've said, that certainly can happen, but in my experience as a pastor, it's extremely rare. Uh, instead, adults often become Christians when something comes along that sort of shrinks their questions. And that something, I mean, time and time again, that something is always personal. Now, uh, if you're new around here and that sounds like an insult to your intelligence, it's really not. And in fact, in the first week of this series, I shared a really fun example to illustrate how this sort of thing actually happens in life all the time. And if you were with us, you may recall that I talked about the list that I made back in college, right, as to why I didn't ever want to get married. And then a few of you reached out and said, did Sarah know you were going to do that? The answer is no. Second question, did you get in trouble for that? Yes, I did. <laughs> but that's how much I love you, right? So the, my list back in Ann Arbor, why I didn't want to get married, and it contained things like, well, I didn't want to give up my freedom, and I couldn't afford it, right? And I wasn't sure it would make me happy. I mean, I had friends that were married that didn't seem any happier than me. And then I, of course, had that fear that I would picked the wrong person. Remember I said like, you know, what if the DJ at the wedding reception is really cute? And I'm like, oh no, I've picked the wrong one. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, let's be honest, these are some good reasons not to get married. But nonetheless, in spite of my legitimate valid concerns, a few years after college, I got married anyway. And if you ask me why, I tell you it's because, well, I fell in love. <laughs> and when that happened, something changed and I was able to sort of pick my questions and my objections and my concerns up and kind of carry them with me as I walked down the aisle on that faithful day in early June. Uh, anyway, the point of this series is to argue that something similar often happens when adults come to believe in Jesus. I mean, I have many Christian friends. I hang out with them. I talk to them. We have coffee. And they would say that, you know, they still struggle with some of the things that they read in the Bible. They really do. And they also wonder, like many of us do, why if God is so good, there's so much bad in our world. But nonetheless, these friends are still Christians. And again, if you ask them why, they would share a story with you about something that happened to them that was incredibly personal that allowed them to carry those questions with them as they crossed the line of faith in Jesus. All that to say that I'm convinced that there's a path to faith in Jesus that takes you around your questions instead of through them. And so what I want to do as we sort of land this set of talks today is I want to focus your attention on the two most important questions that I think you really need to consider if you are seriously interested in becoming a follower of Jesus or even seriously exploring what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And the questions go like this. Who is and what happened? Like who is 
And what happened? It, 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 like, if you ever reach the place where you embrace faith in Jesus, it will be because you found satisfying answers to these two questions. And of course, the first one really is the most important of all. Like, who is Jesus? I mean, let's be honest, as fun as it is to talk about whether or not there were dinosaurs on Noah's Ark, and I've had friends ask me that question, and or, you know, to argue about whether creation took seven literal days or if it was just sort of, you know, some Jewish metaphor, if Jesus really was who he said that he was, then these other questions become a lot less important. So that's the first one, the who is Jesus. The other question, what happened, it's critical because unlike other religions and other faith traditions, Christianity was not originally founded on teaching or philosophy. Instead, the foundation of the Christian faith is something that really happened in our world, like a historical event that I believe changed everything for everyone. Okay, so now with the rest of our time today, what I want to do is explore a narrative that was recorded in the New Testament in a letter called Acts, A-C-T-S. And it was written by an early Jesus follower named Luke, and it contains, it, uh, you know, kind of chronicles one guy's experience after he found satisfying answers to these two Questions And the story I want to share with you takes place a few months after Jesus was crucified. Uh, and Jesus was crucified uh, just outside of the city of Jerusalem. So as the story begins, we're inside the city of Jerusalem. And before we get to the particulars of the story, you should know that when Jesus was executed on that cross, everyone, including his first followers, believed that his movement was over and that the city of Jerusalem, which had been thrown into chaos, would soon return to normal. But that's not what happened. Instead, these first Jesus followers, after a few days, kept talking about Jesus. In fact, within a couple of months of the crucifixion, as much as 10% of the city of Jerusalem had come to believe that Jesus was the Messiah or the Christ. And the unexpected reason for that reality was that there were literally hundreds of people walking around the city of Jerusalem claiming that they had seen Jesus alive again with their own eyes. Like the eyewitnesses to the resurrected Jesus were everywhere. And this caused the Jewish religious establishment headquartered in that structure, the temple in the city. Well, they became increasingly anxious and frustrated because you see, they assumed that when they had Jesus executed, because they were the ones who had asked Jesus, had had Jesus executed, they believed that Jesus' followers would disband and no longer be a problem for them. But that's not what happened. And so they formulated a new plan to shut down the Jesus movement permanently. And that plan began with the arrest of one of the Jesus movement's most effective communicators in its early days, a man by the name of Stephen. And apparently, Stephen had developed the annoying habit, at least from their perspective, of engaging the religious leaders in debates about Jesus. And as they were debating, they were winning more converts to Jesus. And, and so this religious establishment decided to arrest Stephen, to bring him into custody, put him on trial, and then literally throw stones at him until he died. I mean, you get the sense these guys were serious about stopping the Jesus movement. And it's in that moment that our story begins. Because in that moment, Luke introduces us to a guy who would later become a household name. I mean, buildings have been named after this guy. You may have actually been named after this guy. One of your kids may have been named after this guy. I mean, almost everybody knows who he is. But today I want to share the story of, well, how 
he became known. And his name was Saul. And he would later become known by his Roman name, Paul. And Luke introduced him to us in the narrative this way. He wrote, and Saul was there giving approval to Stephen's death. And then Luke went on to report that on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem. And all except the apostles, that's those original disciples of Jesus, all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Judea is sort of the region uh, in Israel, and Samaria is the region directly to the north. In other words, following Stephen's stoning, the Jewish religious leaders declared open season on Christians in the city of Jerusalem. And they scattered. And then we learn this from Luke. He says, meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest, that's the guy sort of in charge of the Jewish religious establishment, and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus. So, he said, if he uh, found any there belonging to the way, that's like the Christians, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So apparently, Saul didn't just want to get rid of the Christians in Jerusalem. He wanted to shut down the Jesus movement like wherever it began to grow. Damascus is a city 190 miles north of Jerusalem. Like that is a long walk by anyone's standards, right? You, get, can, you, get, you can get the sense that Saul was convinced that Christianity was dangerous. And he was willing to do whatever it took in order to stop its spread. Anyway, as the account continues, we learn that as Saul was approaching the city of Damascus, like a few days past, his feet are sore, he's covered in dust, and he's approaching the city. In a single moment, his life was dramatically redirected. And Luke described what happened this way in his text. He wrote, and I quote, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And as I sort of set myself in this narrative as I was working on this this week, I, you know, I was imagining that if Saul hadn't literally been knocked to the ground by this voice, he might have said something like, what do you mean persecuting me? I'm not persecuting a me, I'm persecuting an it. I'm persecuting a cult, a movement, a false ideology. But the voice said me. And in response, and don't miss this, Saul asked the single most important question that any of us can ask. He asked, who are you? And then in response, Saul heard three words that completely changed the course of his life. I mean, there would have been nothing more unexpected. The voice said, I am Jesus whom you were persecuting. And I can't even imagine the emotion that would have flooded into Saul in that moment because he thought he was working for God. Like because of these three words, Paul, Saul's world turned completely upside down. I mean, and to be fair, he still had questions. He had a whole bunch of new questions, like beginning with how any of this was possible. But nonetheless, for Saul, in this moment, things got really, really personal. Moreover, he understood that if Jesus was alive, then those first Christians were telling the truth. And if Jesus was alive, then he'd actually been working against God. 
And if Jesus was alive, then Jesus really was who his first followers said that he was. He was the Messiah. He was the Christ. He was the Son of God. He was the Savior of the world. I mean, Paul would say, if Jesus was really alive, that changed everything. And I'm telling you, that day on the road to Damascus, Saul became convinced that in spite of all of his questions and concerns and misplaced expectations, he became absolutely convinced that Jesus was who he said he was. Anyway, Luke's account, um, as he continues, he noted that things quickly got even more interesting for Saul. He wrote that Jesus told Saul, okay, get up, go into the city of Damascus, and wait for instructions, which, not surprisingly, based on what just happened, you know, he did. And meanwhile, somewhere else in the city of Damascus, God made contact with a Jesus follower named Ananias and informed Ananias that, well, he was soon going to have an unexpected house guest. And I just, you know, imagine the conversation Ananias would have responded, happy to help, Lord. Who is it? And God would have said, "Um, oh, you've heard of him. His name is Saul. And Ananias would have responded, Saul? Like, you got to be kidding me. And God would have responded, yep, Saul, he's going to come to your house today. And Ananias is thinking, no, he's not. But because God told him, he said, okay. But he did have an objection first. He said, okay, God, um, the, the Saul plan's great. I mean, you can put on some tea. But, I mean, I have heard many reports about, maybe you don't know. Just want to make sure you're up to speed. I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm that he's done to your saints in Jerusalem. Oh, and it's better, he says, because, and he has come with the authority from the chief priests to arrest all of those, all of us, including me, who call on your name. So, um, how about somebody else comes over for tea? And God replied, go. <laughs> like, that's the plan. This man, in fact, is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles. That's all the non-Jewish people and their kings. And he says, and before the people of Israel. God says to Ananias, you've got to understand, even though Saul has been working against me, I'm about to make him the world's most passionate advocate for me and for Jesus. In fact, God could have said to Ananias, dude, I hate to break this to you. I mean, I know you're still absorbing the whole Saul thing, but the only reason anybody is going to remember you, like 2,000 years from now in Ada, Michigan, never heard of it, hasn't been invented yet, they're going to be talking about you. But you know why they're going to be talking about you? Not because you're you. (laughs) Because you're going to be remembered as a footnote in Saul's story. And Ananias would have been like, what? (laughs) He didn't share that Ada part. That was just me. But you know what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, um, a bit of time passes, and Saul arrived at Ananias' house And in short order, was baptized into the Christian faith, which means Ananias and Saul had a conversation that led to Ananias leading Saul to a body of water, and Saul was immersed and came forth publicly proclaiming his allegiance to Jesus. And that's pretty stunning. And it actually, um, you know, it it, it really should make you and I ask a question, and the question goes like this, Um, doesn't it seem like Saul was going too fast? (laughs) I mean, I don't mean to judge, but shouldn't he have had a few questions first? Like, he took the corner from, I'm going to destroy all the Christians, to I want to be a Christian and tell other people to be Christians in like a few hours. And I want to like pull him aside and say, Saul, buddy, um, don't you want to work through the implications of this decision first? For you, this is a big decision. I mean, won't you lose your friends? And if I had had the opportunity to ask all those questions, I'm convinced he would have responded with something like, well, um, you know, no, I don't really have any questions because there's only two things that matter to me now. Who is 
And what happened? Because, you see, on the road to Damascus, Jesus became very personal for me. I still have questions, a lot of questions, but somehow they don't, they just don't seem all that important anymore. And I'm pretty confident that's how Saul would have responded because of what Luke tells us he said next. Because Luke tells us that at once, he says at once, Saul began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. And I bet all the Christians, those Jesus followers, because they were still meeting in synagogues, right? They saw that Jesus fulfilled the Jewish law. He was their Messiah, but they're still in synagogue. I bet all the Christians ran out of the synagogues in Damascus when Paul walked in. Because the, and the, like, the only people who would have remained uh, would have stayed back. Uh, were, they would have been the Jewish people who didn't believe in Jesus. And so Paul would have walked up front and said something like, everyone, could I have your attention, please? I need you to know something. Jesus is the Messiah. And the Jewish people who didn't believe in Jesus would have listened and would have thought, what happened to you? And in fact, Luke tells us this. He said, all those who heard Paul or Saul were astonished and asked, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who called on this name? And uh, hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? And it says, yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. Well, well, eventually the Jews who didn't believe in Jesus had enough of Saul and sort of drove him out of Damascus. And you say, well, where does Paul go next? Well, Paul headed right back to Jerusalem because he wanted to meet with the only Christians left in Jerusalem, the original disciples of Jesus. And so Luke tells us, uh, when Saul came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, <laughs> not believing that he really was a disciple. In other words, they couldn't believe that Saul had changed his mind so suddenly and so completely. They had so many questions. But fortunately, there was a believer in the midst named Barnabas who affirmed Saul's encounter on the road to Damascus and what he had taught in the synagogues of Damascus. And so as a result, Luke tells us that Saul stayed with those first disciples and moved about freely in Jerusalem. And look at this, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. Okay, so now if you're someone who is somewhere along the journey to faith, like you've been exploring, you've been seeking, you've been asking questions, I, I just need you to think about something. Because of all the people who lived in first century Israel, Saul had to be one of the least likely to come to faith in Jesus. I mean, he had everything to lose. He was educated. He was wealthy. He was politically powerful. He was religiously powerful. He was a member of a group of religious leaders called Pharisees, almost all of whom were categorically opposed to Jesus as they saw him as a threat to their influence and authority, along with their religious objections. And so when Saul became a Jesus follower, from the perspective of the religious establishment, he flushed both his personal life and his future down the drain. Nonetheless, after what he had personally experienced, none of that mattered. Because Saul was absolutely convinced that Jesus was alive again and had recruited him to tell the world. And so consequently, he would go to any length to ensure that the world would know 
what God had done in and through Jesus. In fact, uh, this, this is great. Uh, Paul actually wrote a description of what he had to endure as he traveled the Mediterranean Rim preaching about Jesus. And he recorded it in a message to some early Christians living in Greece. Here's what Paul said. He said, I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. He says, five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. You say, why the 40 lashes minus one? What's going on? Well, they believe 40 lashes would kill you. So they brought him right to the edge in hopes that they could change his mind. And he goes on, three times, he said, I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. And you're like, I would start using the land more. But whatever, that's just me. He said, I spent a night and a day on the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews. They hate me, by the way. In danger from the Gentiles. They're not sure what to do with me. In danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea and in danger from false believers. He goes on, I have labored, and you get, he's, he's pretty fired up here. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. He goes on and on and on and on. And you want to say like, I mean, Saul was willing to experience the worst that this life had to offer for heaven's sake. In fact, after his encounter with the resurrected Jesus, I think it's fair to say that Saul's life was never easy. Nonetheless, at the end of his life, as he was awaiting a death sentence in Rome, Paul still made the following admission in a letter to a group of Christians in a city called Philippi. Check out what he says. Paul said, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. In other words, Paul grew up under this Jewish law that said, you know, he wanted to maintain righteousness by following a bunch of rules. And Paul's like, as it turns out, that wasn't the ultimate plan, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith or trust or belief in Christ the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. And I just, I love this. People that say to me, I don't know about, I don't know about Christianity because I don't know about Christians. And I'm like, have you heard Saul's story? Because he said everything was worth knowing Jesus. It's like Saul said that, you know, whatever it was going to take, he was going to tell the world until the last breath he was given. He said, I have spent the first half of my life navigating the rules and regulations of God's covenant with ancient Israel. 613 rules, the to-dos and the to-don'ts. He says, and I was in that maze and trying to work that maze and trying to stay at peace in my relationship with God. And he says, I counted a great honor to spend the second half of my life, even though it's been hard, impossibly hard, but helping people understand, Jewish people and non-Jewish people, that they could find a lasting peace with their creator, their heavenly father, not through religious rule following, but by the simple act of placing their faith in what Jesus had accomplished for them when he died on the cross. And so if you think about it, the second half of Paul's life makes absolutely no sense apart from an authentic and incredibly personal experience on the road to Damascus when he came face to face with the resurrected Jesus. Okay. So now here's why I think this story matters to you and me. 
if we're honest, and you may be someone that doesn't think about this very often, and that's really cool. I look up to you in this because I think about this stuff all the time. We, I, have questions about God and faith and life. I really do. And so did Saul. But as we've said, what changed for Saul is that he, com- he, f- is, um, that he found compelling answers, not to all his questions, but just two of the questions that mattered most. Who is and what happened? And again, because he did, all of those other doubts and questions and concerns and expectations became, they didn't go away, but they became manageable. And so my prayer for you, especially if you're someone who's here and you're, you're somewhere on the journey to faith, you're not over the line yet. My prayer for you is that you'll find personally satisfying answers to those questions as well. Because I'm telling you, as Paul, Saul experienced, knowing Jesus really does change everything. All right, before we, um, before we close our time together, we have an opportunity Uh, to take communion this morning. And this is a way to remind ourselves of what Jesus accomplished on our behalf the day his body was broken and his blood was spilled to fulfill an old covenant and to ratify a new covenant between people and God. And so just a a few housekeeping notes. If you're new around here, uh, you don't need to be a member here at Keystone in order to participate because we don't have members. So we would just have that no one would come. It would be awkward, right? Um, We only ask that you've accepted the sacrifice of Jesus for yourself. And if you're here and you have kids with you, uh, you have a sense of where they are in their spiritual journey, and we trust that parents will will make a decision when when their kid is ready. Um, But if you're here and you've not yet crossed the line of faith, uh, feel free to just take a pass on communion. You've probably already caught this because of this series, but this is kind of a judgment-free zone, and we're just honored that you're with us today. And we're honored that you would listen, and we're honored that you would be exploring, and we're, we're, we just pray that you would find something that changes everything for you. Uh, so in just a moment, the band is going to play a song to give you some space to reflect, and then when you're ready, uh, you can go to one of the stations and, uh, and take the bread. They're all gluten-free because it's 2023. I don't know, so don't worry about that. And, and remember, um, remember how much you're loved by your Heavenly Father and the new life that He has invited you to live. There'll be stations in the front and along the back. Um, And then after the song, I'll, I'll come and I'll close our time together in prayer.
Would you stand? Before I pray, if you're here this morning and you've reached a moment where you're ready to cross the line and you'd just like to share that with someone, or if you're here and you just need someone to pray with you for something you're going through in life, we'd love to meet you under the screen to the left. Uh, we have some friends who are there every week and just would love to connect with you. Uh, but for the rest of us, let me close our time in prayer. Heavenly Father, we celebrate you because of who you are. And because of what you have done, we thank you that you made a way when there was no way. We thank you that you were willing to do whatever it would take to bring your lost kids home. And for those of us who have had that experience where we have connected with you, we, we just we say thank you once again. For loving us not because we are good but because you are good and and for those that are somewhere along the journey i pray that you would connect with them in a very personal way that would maybe reframe those questions and doubts and concerns that are keeping them from that final step of being restored in their relationship to you but for all of us we thank you for this community where we can gather to celebrate the grace that you have shown and the life that we have found in Jesus. And I pray that going into the fall, um, this would be a place where more and more friends who are searching and hurting and questioning could come and be reunited with you. It is such an honor to be a part of what you are doing in this community. And so for today, we bless you. We thank you. In the matchless name of your Son, our Savior, the Messiah, the Christ, Jesus, we pray. And everyone said, amen. Grace and peace to you, friends. We'll see you next week.